Question. Why do people work against their own self-interests? A man steps into a voting booth. He has just gotten off his shift at the plant. He is worried he is going to lose his job. Many of his friends have already seen their jobs cut and then shipped overseas, their salaries slashed, or their pensions removed. The man looks down at his choices. The first, the incumbent, for governor, has been focusing on free trade and globalization. This is the governor who recently took a trip to China and has been photographed with their president. Then he looks at the other candidate, the candidate who has been promising to end trade deals that are hurting American workers, the candidate who will make sure jobs stay in this country, that other countries are playing by the rules. The man looks down once more at the ballot, nods his head, and votes for the free trade candidate. Why would he do that? Why do people, working people, vote against their economic self-interest? The man knows that by voting the way he does, he's sending his job to China. Doesn't he? Doesn't he get that? If you type in working against one's self-interest into Google, countless articles come up talking about this very subject. In preparation for this lesson on the Pequot War and King Philip's War, a similar question kept popping into my mind. Why didn't the natives just work together against a smaller English force? That is the question I want to discuss today. Chapter 1. The Players in Our Story While forgotten and, for the most part, skipped over by most history books and history classes, kudos, by the way, to the teachers who are able to include this into their curriculum, because I sure wasn't, both the Pequot and King Philip's Wars were extremely important to U.S. history, in a couple of ways. The unifying of New England, especially Massachusetts, is one of them. The settling of colonial policy towards native groups was the other. Considering the two events we cover here are going to be wars, you can probably guess how the policy shaped out. Spoilers, it was war. While many of us, including myself, find it easy to think of these wars as colonists versus native tribes, it was actually much more complex. There were multiple groups jockeying for multiple positions. Here's a rundown of some of the groups involved. At the beginning of the Pequot War in 1636, the English are not broken up into the 13 colonies we often think of in our American history classes. I know when I teach this portion, I usually skip it because I've often felt there were more important things to get onto. More important things to me, at least, like the American Revolution and George Washington's teeth. So I assign the reading and move on to the good stuff. The colonies were boring, with dreary Puritans in New England who prayed and ate, and then prayed some more. Not counting Salem, of course, but who doesn't talk about the witch trials? There were the more industrious middle colonies, and a few Quakers in Pennsylvania, and of course the large tobacco plantations in the South. That about covers it, right? Well, not necessarily. You see, that story assumes that the English just showed up and naturally fell into their nice little zones. As I've stated before on the podcast, and as my students hopefully would tell you, anything that simple can't be right. And it wasn't. It turns out it took a long time, and we're talking over 100 years here, to get to that system. 
And even then, to lump the 13 colonies into three groups is problematic. And if you know what's coming, hint, or Articles of Confederation, you know what I'm talking about. So what did the colonies look like in the 1630s? Well, here's a quick snapshot. Massachusetts Bay was roughly southern of modern-day Boston to north of Salem and west of the Connecticut River. Plymouth Colony was an area south of Boston to the Atlantic Ocean. Rhode Island was founded by Roger Williams. More on him in future episodes, by the way. And then there was Connecticut, which was west of Rhode Island. New Hampshire existed in some form at the time as well, each with a different mandate, each with a different set of rules, each with a different set of goals. For example, both Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay were run by Puritans. But the pilgrims in Plymouth, or separatists, as they called themselves, wanted nothing to do with King Charles I of England, while the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay knew they owed their livelihood to the king, so they said some very nice things about him. That is, until Charles went and got his head cut off, and then they didn't say much about him at all. At the same time, these disparate English were moving in. There were a number of native tribes being moved out. When the aforementioned pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock and needed food, the Wampanoag were the ones to help them. Also found in the area were the Narragansetts, roughly in modern-day Rhode Island, southern Massachusetts, and eastern Connecticut. Also included were the Mohegan, who occupied a very similar area to that of the Narragansett. So, what happened to all these groups? Did each side line up opposite each other on the battlefield and ready themselves to fight? Well, it it didn't work out that way. Chapter 2. The Wars. As I stated before, I always used to skim this part of the book in my class. I always assumed that the information presented in the history textbook was sufficient and we could get to George Washington because, I mean, come on, it's George Washington. My assumption, though, was wrong, as I found out researching this topic. I personally own three textbooks, and I know what you're thinking. How cool can this guy possibly be? Pretty cool, actually. And of the three textbooks that I own, only one is actually anything to say about the colonial period prior to the French and Indian War, other than Pilgrims, Salem, Jamestown, and then we jump into the 13 colonies. They don't actually talk about this period. To make sure I was on the right track, though, I asked one of my former college professors if he knew any of any textbooks that talk about these particular wars. Dr. Kyle Ward has made a study of history textbooks and has written a few books on the subject, including History Lessons and Not Written in Stone. By the way, he did say I could name drop, and if I did, I could pay him. What a deal! But seriously, great author and a great guy, and he really knows his stuff. And Dr. Ward's response to me was, no, textbooks do not cover this story. He actually mentioned that he kind of laughed when he heard about it, because classes usually don't either. So I felt both vindicated that my textbooks and my class was representative of the whole, but also kind of bad, because I had been doing my students a disservice by not researching this topic thoroughly. The Pequot War which took place from 1636 to 1638, essentially wiped out the Pequots in New England. The Pequots had, up to that point, 
been the most powerful tribe in the region and posed the greatest threat to English dominance in the area. The thumbnail sketch of this war is given to us by Kenneth Davis, author of America's Hidden History. I actually don't know him personally, so I didn't ask. I probably should have, but <laughs> winky smiley face emoji. Anyway, we find this war, though, in Davis's description of John Endicott. Endicott was a soldier fighting for the Massachusetts Bay Colony and was, in the words of Davis, the closest American equivalent to an Ayatollah or modern jihadist. At one point, Davis suggests that all women should cover their heads in respect for God as described in the Bible. Now, the Puritans, who hated Christmas because it was too much like a pagan festival for their tastes, thought this was a bit much. So, the Puritans thought he was too crazy. Anyway, Endicott was made the top military commander in the colony and was sent to lead what would become the most decisive battle in the war, the battle at the Mystic Fort. Up until the battle at Mystic, the Pequots had been fighting off their enemies with some success. I say enemies because it wasn't just the English fighting the Pequots. The Pequots controlled land coveted by the Narragansett and the Mohegan tribes. Because of this, on May 26, 1637, a combined force of English, Narragansett, and Mohegan soldiers made their way down the Mystic River to the Pequot encampment there. The Pequot community they found was surrounded by wooden fortifications. In other words, it was very well protected. After multiple attacks by the English and their allies, the English decided to abandon the initial tactic, which was capture as many people as possible and ransom them off. And they opted for a different strategy. Extermination. Things, as they say, escalated quickly. The English and their allies blocked off paths of escape and set the encampment on fire. Everyone inside was burned to death. Men, women, and children. When word of the massacre spread, the Pequots' will broke, and they were defeated. The atrocity of the Mystic Massacre was not lost on the tribes allied with the English. The Narragansett, one of the allies of the English during the Pequot War, would be at war with the English themselves within a generation. That war would come to be known as King Philip's War, started by the Wampanoags. The Wampanoags, seeing the ever-increasing strength of the English, decided that if they were going to survive, they would have to go to war. By 1675, the English were a large force and the proverbial big kid on the block, increasing their number because not only did Puritans pray, it turns out, they took to heart the notion of be fruitful and multiply, having on average seven or eight children per family. The Massachusetts Bay Colony doubled its population every generation because of that. The Wampanoags decided that if they didn't strike now, they would never get another chance and would be removed just by sheer numbers. King Philip's War was full circle for the Wampanoags. They had been the group to help the first English settlers in the area, the Pilgrims, survive. When I think of that time, I often think of my elementary school days around Thanksgiving time, when we school children would dress up as pilgrims or natives and share the first Thanksgiving meal. I do not, though, remember the part where, after the meal was over, we killed each other. But I am getting older and prone to forget things. To fight the war, the Wampanoags turned to their leader, Medicom, whose English name was Philip, 
hence King Philip's War. As an aside, I think history would be much better served to have this called Medicom's War, because his name is Medicom. How cool is that? Medicom led a number of raids against the English, who by this point were not at all united. Connecticut wanted to gain more land for their colony, as did the Massachusetts Bay. Plymouth looked around and realized that if they didn't do something quickly, their territory would be swallowed up by the Puritans to the north. Then, to the west of everyone, was New Amsterdam, what would become New York later on, and the extremely powerful Iroquois Confederacy. Because of their fear of being taken over, Plymouth Colony used the raids by the Wampanoags to attack the Narragansett, because... why not? Actually, there was a reason. And that reason was because the Narragansetts had land desired by Plymouth, and the Wampanoags didn't. The Narragansetts did not want to be involved in the war, and their being drawn into the war by Plymouth was a tragic turn, as it would have dire consequences for both the tribe and the colony that attacked them. King Philip's War was one that the colonies were all excited about. It had been 40 years since the Pequot War, and all thoughts of the horrors experienced on both sides had faded. Both sides also told themselves the lie that all nations do when they go to fight a war. War will be quick and easily won. That's what they told themselves. Didn't quite work out that way. Metacom and his forces started by attacking Massachusetts Bay and won a number of small battles. As time marched on, so did the colonies, into Metacom's territory, at which point the colonies were actually defeated. Metacom and his forces rarely lost, and when they did, it sure didn't seem like they were losing. The casualty rates were extremely high. While Massachusetts Bay and Metacom's forces were going at it, the aforementioned Plymouth decided they could use the attacking Wampanoags to justify attacking the altogether different, and in this case, neutral group of Narragansetts. The war went poorly for the colonists, though, especially in the later months of 1675. But as winter came, the availability of food for both Metacom's people and the Narragansetts started to run out. By the time spring of 1676 rolled around, the well-fed colonists started to dismantle the different tribes, community by community. Metacom himself was finally captured in the summer of 1676, at which point he was drawn, quartered, and decapitated. This barbaric ritual includes having your innards cut out or drawn, your limbs tied to four different horses, who then tear them off, and then eventually he was put out of his misery by having his head cut off. His head was put on display for Plymouth to see. I think at this point it's important to kind of take a step back and realize everything about this was awful. Not just what they did to Medicom, but what the English colonists did to the other groups. They massacred whole towns, whole villages. But that was also done to the colonists who started the war. Plymouth colonies had multiple towns burned to the ground, killing men, women, and children as well. This was not a good time for anyone involved. King Philip's War was seen as a victory for the colonies. Victory, though, had come at a very high price. 8% of the male population of Plymouth had died in the year-long war. Because of the population loss and the devastation reigned in the surrounding villages, again, many of which had been burned to the ground in response to the Plymouth attack, the Plymouth colony ceased to be. 
with Massachusetts Bay taking over. For you keeping score at home, this is exactly the outcome Plymouth Colony wanted to avoid by going to war. While things were bad for the people of the colonies, things were much worse for the indigenous peoples. In all of New England, the native populations lost between 60 and 70 percent, effectively ending native resistance to New England. The frontier had effectively been moved west, a trend that would continue for the next 200 years. Chapter 3. What were they thinking? As I said before, the thought that kept popping into my head while studying this topic was, why didn't the natives just join together and fight the English, especially during the Pequot War? Even after being ravaged by disease, the native populations vastly outnumbered the English. In other words, why did the natives work against their own self-interest? The answer to this question, as many of you may have already guessed, is that the natives didn't. To say the natives as if the variety of nations that inhabited all of North America were one big group is a fallacy right off the bat. The many nations also had competing needs and wants. I think it's also important to remember that during the Pequot War in the 1630s, the English were not the biggest threat in the region. The Pequots were. And that's why the Narragansett and the Mohegans joined the English against the Pequots. The alliance then shifted 40 years later when the English became the bigger threat. Alliances will continue to shift as time goes on in North America. The Algonquin-speaking tribes will ally with the French against the British in the French and Indian War. Then they will ally with the British against the colonists and the French during the American Revolution. So you can see, to label these disparate groups as one is at the very least problematic. To say that all Native Americans or First Nations are the same is like saying all Europeans are the same because they look similar, which, if we know anything about the history of Europe, isn't quite how things worked out. For Exhibit A, I present to the court World War I. For Exhibit B, I present World War II. Lumping groups together is something we like to do. It makes things easy for us to understand. Individuals are messy. Groups are easy. The bigger the group, the easier it is. Rarely, though, is it right? While we in today's world may find Native Americans, again, a misnomer in and of itself, as difficult to understand as a variety of groups and not one big group, the early colonists understood all too well that they were dealing with a variety of groups. Again, I'm going to jump back to Kenneth Davis's America's Hidden History. The first English to settle in Massachusetts, he says, quickly grasped this truth that there were many groups jockeying for power, and they learned to play these intertribal rivalries to their advantage. Chapter 4. How does this affect us today? If we go back to the factory worker voting for the free market candidate instead of the pro-union anti-free trade candidate, we can find ourselves asking, why is he voting against his own self-interest? I believe the answer is, we can't know he is for sure. We cannot assume that economics are his most important issue, or that he even agrees with a closed trading policy anyway. Depending on whether we vote Democrat or Republican, we may decide if he is voting the right way or not. But judging another person based on our own perspective or biases is wrong. The same is true for other groups. 
by not understanding that groups like the Pequots or the Narragansetts have their own interests and values is not only problematic, but blatantly wrong. We have to understand each group for what they are, unique. But am I right? Should we have to take individuals as individuals, or because of sheer size, do we need to be able to group people into categories? What do you think? This has been a question of history. so much for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please email us at questionofhistory at gmail.com. We can also be found at our website, aquestionofhistory.weebly.com. And we're on Twitter, at QofHist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.